This is a recording for the Church of the Resurrection. We are an Anglican church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Our worship includes the proclamation of God's Word, the regular celebration of the Holy Communion, and an expectation that the Holy Spirit is active in the church and our lives. Please join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Boys and Girls Club on 824 East 14th Street. Heavenly Father, Lord our God, we do thank you for gathering us here today. Please open your word to us and shape our hearts by it. May your Holy Spirit bring meaning to these words, and may they testify to your perfect Son, Jesus Christ. Form us, that we may show the world that we are free to sacrifice because of your holy work that has begun in Jesus and is being brought to completion in us. Grant us this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we look at the fourth value or the fourth distinctive of the diocese, uh, the greater body that we belong to. Uh, you can find these distinctives on their website, you know. So um, I, I thought I would read what they have on the website so we can be on, on one page. On the, on the website, it says that we are free to sacrifice. And they derive this from Acts chapter 2, verse 45, which says, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone in need. Now, from this verse, they derive these statements. Uh, as a, a body, we want to be kingdom responsive so that we can find ourselves being worldly irresponsible. This freedom to sacrifice appears to our fasting, service, welcoming of the lost of the, and the least, generosity with money, forgiveness, reconciliation, and following Jesus even when the cost is high. Being mother or father, husband or wife, or celibate, all require consistent sacrifice. We honor spiritual fathers and mothers. We ask all to live a sacrificial life, recognizing that the cost is different for each individual. We honor chastity, waiting, self-sacrifice, and countercultural generosity. Now, it's interesting. They derive all that from one little verse, and it kind of reminds me of this is going to date me. When I was a little kid, there used to be a show on PBS that was public broadcasting for anybody who might remember that. Um, but there's a show called The Bloodhound Gang, and you know they would go away and they would use science to you know uh, solve certain mysteries. And one episode, totally ridiculous, they're kidnapped and thrown in the van. Um, but in the van, they're able to find a little pinhole and they're able to make a pinhole camera inside the van, and the the, the picture's upside down. So. Um, what we have here kind of reminds me of that, and kind of need to, to look and see the greater reality that's standing behind this one little focal point of this verse. Um, so we're going to need to unpack Acts chapter 2:45 a little bit, so we can see how we're free to sacrifice. Now, to do that, we're going to have to go over a little bit of redemption history. We need to talk about Israel's story just briefly. When I mean briefly, we're going to cram hopefully about 2,000 years into about two minutes. So. So we need to understand how the Jewish people got themselves to this point we find them in Acts 2, 45. I do have to skip a little bit. We don't have time to talk about Abraham or the patriarchs, but it will suffice to remember that God had drawn Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and established his covenant relationship with the Israelite people. In our passage of Deuteronomy, he told them of the blessings that we read, if they obeyed and warned them of the curses if they had sinned. But notably, notably about this passage, God promises he will not let Israel dwell in sin and rebellion, but he will do what is hard and painful. 
he will send them into exile. And so way back when the law was given, he told them that he would do this. So it says in verse 28, as Zach uh, read earlier, and the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. So in a sense, God is going to place Israel in a furnace of intense discipline. But we must remember it is because God loves Israel and desires to shape them and reshape them into something that is beautiful and useful. So now, the Jewish exile began roughly 597 B.C., give or take a couple years, depending on the, the scholar you ask. Uh, began with the Babylonian exile, and it lasted for 70 years. And there in Babylon and in other places uh, of the, the uh, Babylonian Empire, the, the Jewish people languished. But this wasn't the end for Israel. Um, uh, even while the Jewish parents listened to their children learning foreign languages better than they would know Hebrew, God helped them to retain that identity. Now, in doing so, in retaining this identity, they would recall actually that second half of Deuteronomy, that they could hope once again in the God they had forgotten. They would know him once again, but under the intense pressure and many trials, the Jews were forced to reckon with their rebellion, but they would come to know God in a new way through that exile. Um, and Deuteronomy goes on to, to say with the promise that he would return them to their land after they would turn back to him, and he would make them more numerous than their exiles. And that Psalm 126 is, um, I love that psalm, and it's, it's this sense of, after waiting for so long, the psalmist is able to say, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream, like something impossible we never thought would happen. It's coming true right before our very eyes. And then our mouths were filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Now, um, it was about 530 B.C. Uh, when King Cyrus of Persia um, and I read about in Daniel, allowed the Jewish exiles to return homes. And so there were waves of Jewish immigrants that were returning to Palestine. But it would be years before they could rebuild their temple, their center of worship. And during this time, too, um, prophets, prophets stopped bringing words from God. And on top of all this, they had no king. Um, it'd be like if we had no president. I know some people might kind of want that right now, but um, uh, can you imagine the, uh, the sense of loss of identity that they were dwelling in? It would be 500 plus years before God would send and reveal his chosen king, his Messiah, Jesus. 500 years before God would deal with either Israel's sinfulness decisively. Uh, but Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and this wasn't in the bulletin, but I'll read it to you. God makes the promise the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Now, you recall from last week, we read Acts, 2 verses, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and um, Jews from all parts of the Roman Empire um, with the names that were hard to say. Remember that? Um, that was happening in that passage, and they were all gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And the 120 disciples were praying, and the tongues of fire came down, and they began speaking languages of all the Jews that were gathered there. And this gave Peter an opportunity, like no other, to preach 
the Sermon of Sermons, and essentially told them, God sent you his Messiah. He showed him to you by signs, wonders, and miracles, and you rejected him. You killed God's chosen one. I believe that this particular, uh, or, or Peter's sermon there, is the fulfillment of the promise in Deuteronomy 3, verse 6. Um, because we turn to verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, and we read that Peter's sermon invoked in his hearers a profound response. They were cut to the heart. And scholars have noted that this is the only place in the New Testament this phrase appears. And so this is a clarifying statement. And the meaning of this phrase is to have a sharp pain or a stab, to be acutely distressed or be convicted deeply. In this case, those who had opposed Jesus on his time here on earth were convinced of the wrong and upside-down nature of their lives. Circumcision is not a pleasant process, and no less so circumcision of the heart. But through God's grace, Peter is able to provide the necessary relief to their anxiety. And verse 38 has him saying, Repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And also, from God's eternal provision, Peter informs them, they too would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So all this, this redemptive history that we've just talked about, these you know, 2,000 years culminating in this particular point, this is the backdrop for the passage of Acts 2.45. And so let's you know, read the larger passage that Acts 2.45 uh, resides in. And starting at verse 42, we read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together, and all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking breads in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Now, in doing some research, some commentators have looked at this passage of Acts and can compare it to other utopian visions of humanity. The, the Greeks have some type of, you know, perfect society. Um, and, you know, I've been a part of churches where we look at this passage and say, if we're to be the perfect church, we, we have to look like this, right? Um, <laughs> um, the problem with that is that utopian visions of humanity, they're often static. They don't move. They're not flexible. And when we idolize nostalgic visions of the past, we tend to neglect human nature and Oftentimes, we find ourselves constraining divine activity. Uh, divine initiative tends to be squelched. Instead, we should understand our passage today as this part of a lot, that larger redemptive history. And so it follows then that the, the fourth distinctive of the diocese, of being free to sacrifice, it recognizes that God is active and living and working in our history to enter into his life is to enter into a sacrificial life lived out in the real world. Day by day, I don't know if you caught that in the passage earlier, day by day, 
This implies a real historical transformation of the community of believers. Now, I just kind of want you to imagine with me for a moment. You don't have to uh, close your eyes. Um, you might fall asleep, but uh, imagine with me. Uh, I'm trying to get an a, uh, image of, of this redemptive process, um, kind of how it works. Um, so imagine, if you will, a man standing in a dimly lit building. Thin beams of light stream into the room. And there are dark corners. But these dark corners are necessary for the man to ply his trade. He dons a leather apron, puts on sturdy work gloves, and he ignites a furnace. Powered by fuel and fed by air, he uses it to heat his preferred medium, steel. Now he has to choose the right type of steel for the job. And once he does, he's ready for action. He picks up his favorite tools, two-pound hammer and a pair of tongs. Now, if you haven't guessed by now, this man is a blacksmith. And the material he works with is steel. It's strong, and it's sometimes difficult, um, but it can be very useful. His forge must get the steel to at least uh, 1,200 degrees centigrade, uh, or that's 2,192 degrees Fahrenheit for those of us in North America. It has to get that hot just in order for him to begin moving it to his desired shape. Any colder and, uh, or any less temperature than that may actually risk ruining the metal. Now, the dark corners of the shop mentioned earlier help to accurately detect the color of the light that the metal is emitting. Now, the, the glow of orange can actually communicate to him many things about the internal nature of the piece he's working with. Too much heat and the, the steel will destroy itself. Um, too little heat, and like I said, the, it becomes brittle. And upon first use, the blacksmith's work will just shatter. He works with intentionality, pounding it hard when he needs to, pounding it lightly when it needs just a little finessing to get into the right shape. Um, and when he's satisfied with his shape, he once again puts it into a forge and he brings it up to that temperature, pulls it out when it's that right color of glow, glowing orange. And then he immerses it into uh, usually oil or water and it sends up uh, either a burst of steam or a burst of flame. Um, once the steel is cooled, then he can finally take that, uh, the blacksmith can take that piece and do a final sharpening uh, or polishing and present that tool or object for its final task. So I hope this analogy uh, to Israel's history is clear. God put Israel under great pressure and laid upon it many blows in order to shape and prepare it for the redemptive purposes for which he had created the nation for. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God brought Israel to the point to where, confessing faith in Christ, they had the freedom to sacrifice. So this is what stands behind verse 45 of selling their possessions and goods that they gave to anyone in need. The backdrop is that of God dealing with Israel's great sin in his immense and eternal love. Our freedom to serve comes also through this process of redemptive transformation. Pastor Christopher has mentioned it on a couple of Sundays um, that his vision for the Church of Resurrection is that be a place of transformation. Transformation sounds great, um, but it is not always pleasant or easy. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, for, the, for at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Often it requires that pressure 
heat, intentional blows from the master artist to reshape our misshapen hearts and character. But Hebrews goes on to say, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's purpose for this transformation is that we become useful, willing instruments of his grace in a broken and rebellious world. This transformation into Christ's likeness is intended to make us distinctly free to sacrifice. And Jesus Christ is faithful to administer and bring this task to completion. He has given us accessible disciplines that were mentioned in the fourth distinctive, distinctive fasting, service, generosity, an intentional welcoming of the lost. These all foster the process of transformation of Christ-like character. As we grow to be like Jesus, we will see and we will know, we will sense God's kingdom rule and respond to it. So much so that we'll be able to recognize and to challenge the deceptive and seductive powers of this world. But we do so knowing, as Pastor Christopher said last week, that God does everything. We do something, right? Um, and in this phrase, um, this is what Jesus is trying to tell us in the gospel reading today. I've always found this particular passage very confusing. It's like, you know, what is Jesus trying to say? You know, you're just, you're just slaves, right? You're just servants, right? No, actually what Jesus is trying to say, he prefaces it by saying, well, if you have faith, you can tell the mulberry tree to get thrown in the sea, Right? Well, that's a great act of faith. But he says, don't, and if you could put any type of phrase in between the two passages, it might be something like, don't get a big head, right? Jesus is saying, um, um, sorry, lost my place here. Um, Jesus is saying, as we progress in spiritual growth, we are never to forget that our sacrificial life it comes about from being embraced into the gener generous and gracious presence of God. The God who sacrifices on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, who sustains this entire world, who provides us with all that we need, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the source of our freedom. And so, in verse 9, Jesus asks, you know, does he thank, does the master thank the servant for doing what he has commanded? Right? So when we do things, when we are free to sacrifice, when we... Uh, I think one of those things it says, when we forgive, when we reconcile, does God thank us for those things? Well, no. God does not thank us uh, because he doesn't need us really to accomplish those things. Rather, we need to understand God is joyful when we enter that sacrificial life. And we ought to be joyful too. But we recognize that it was with the joy that we enter into fasting and serving and welcoming the lost, being faithful in marriage, all these things, being faithful in singleness, it doesn't come from our own being. Rather, it wells up from the presence of the Holy Spirit within us and among us. Um, we live in a crazy world. That's a world that's uh, hell-bent on amassing wealth and power. Um, you know, um, there's actually uh, a disorder now uh, of hoarding. I mean, it's actually a diagnosed disorder of hoarding. Uh, it's tied to this amassing of wealth. Um, now, uh, if you were to 
catch Netflix in, in the recent year. One of the more popular uh, uh, programs is Marie Kondo's The Calm Marie Method, and she tries to deal with this problem of hoarding. Um, but it's clear to see um, the world, the lost world, it's got a problem. But the problem is really not with stuff. The fallen human soul lacks the life of God, that abundant sacrificial life of God. And in order to make up this lack, it attempts to fill itself with all manner of things, stuff, food, Food Network is very popular, sexual experiences and, and pride. But this is not our life. In Christ, we are free from having to take and take and take. We are free to give our lives, to testify to the overwhelming love of God found in Jesus Christ. Um, and in that, we give great thanks to our, our loving God.